to Very Amusing, your one-stop shop for the stories, secrets, and shenanigans of a popcorn-fueled theme park journalist. I'm Carly Wiesel, and this past week, my husband told me that I have a different voice on my podcast. He was like, you never talk to me in podcast voice. And I was like, well, I'm not usually yelling at listeners to turn the gas burner off on the stove because he left it on, and I could have died. Who knows? I mean, the windows were open. It was probably fine. But anyway, I didn't know I had a podcast voice. I guess I'm just not talking like this in real life because I'm not like, yay, coffee. (laughs) I just have no reason to be excited when I'm hunched over my desk. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Anyway, I want to let you know from the top that the reason I am still able to have podcast voice, who knows, is that I am recording this on Monday morning. So if my tone doesn't match or accurately reflect whatever is going on this week in America, this is why. And if you're listening to this after the fact, you have no idea what I'm talking about. So it doesn't matter. It's going to be a long week. So I'm just hoping this podcast, since it's recorded early, it's going to be locked and loaded. will give you a break from the 23 hours of stress you may have just <laughs> experienced. Now, I do hope you had a great Halloween. If you like me, just uh, dressed your dog up and sat at home working because that's what I did. But I made him look like Fozzie Bear and I tore apart a, how do I say this because there are children in the room, a adult women's Fozzie Bear costume, which shocked to me exists. I had to cut this little bow out off of the teeny tiny dress, but I tied him on him and he wore the little hat headband and it was it was very sweet. I did get to go to El Capitan for yummies this weekend, which was very fun because I got to get a pretzel with cheese, that spicy cheese, which I mentioned last time. I do like, even though I hate peeled up cheese. And I got a bunch of popcorn, so I sat around and ate, which is my hobby and my interest and all of my likes right now. So it wasn't that bad of a Halloween, but I hope you all had a fun one too. This past week though, I did, I did go to the defunct land Halix drive-in screening, which was fantastic. There will probably be a Patreon episode on it by the time this airs, but if you haven't seen Halix, it's free on defunct land's YouTube channel. It's directed by Matthew Serrano, who did an unfathomable job. I don't know. I don't know how he made this so good because Halix is this rock band that played for one summer at Disneyland. Just one summer. There was almost nothing from them. No one really knew about them. I didn't know about them until this documentary came out. And it is so robust. There is so much in there and it's so easy to enjoy. So please, 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 please check it out. And not just because I got to watch it this most recent time with movie theater popcorn. It's been a big popcorn week. Anyway, if you're a Patreon, a patron, a a patron, a paid, I should, there's probably a and a for this on their website somewhere. I should check before I start talking out loud in my podcast voice. Yes, I'm still thinking about this. I, I hope you enjoyed our first zine. It was a Halloween-themed bonanza that covered vintage Disneyland Halloween floats and the coolest stuff from Halloween Horror Nights in Japan and Singapore. I'm not sure if every monthly zine is going to be as holiday-themed, but I'm already, I'm already tossing around some ideas for Thanksgiving, so get amped if you are one of them. We also do weekly Q&As, bonus podcasts, and so much more. So come hang out with us if you aren't already and if you're interested at patreon.com slash Carly Now, this week, the main feed, we are rounding out our final episode of How Things Work. 
We will be talking to two fabulous guests this week. First up is Darren Ulmer, founder and chief creative at Mousetrap, who is essentially the projection mapping king. If you've ever wondered how some of your favorite theme park nighttime spectaculars are actually made or where the best place to stand is, Darren's got it covered. And last but not least, we have the first appearance from my personal friend, Todd Martins. He's the games reporter at the LA Times, but he covers theme parks in Disneyland impeccably. A lot of those big, classic, large Disney newspaper stories, they're his, and they're fabulous. He came on to talk about so many things, but mostly the intersection of gameplay and theme parks and how experiential interactivity will be a big part of our experiences there going forward. We're going to skip the news portion this week because, frankly, we recorded on Tuesday and I'm going to be glued to my television watching the Election Day news roll in. So instead, I just want to extend my deepest sympathies and appreciation towards the cast members who were let go last week. I cannot believe week after week this is is still happening. And it's just crushing to see how many wonderful, wonderful people are now without work. There were massive layoffs in the entertainment division last week, but there are many, many, many more beyond that. And they continue to affect all ends of Walt Disney World and Disneyland. And I just want to express my gratitude towards everything cast members have done and continue to do, as well as theme park employees at other parks like Universal Orlando, Universal Hollywood, SeaWorld, Busch Gardens, and Legoland. Because Disney employees are not by any means the only ones being hit, but their numbers are so astronomical that it's national news. So we love you all, no matter where you have put in your time or where you've worked. We've shared about Cast Member Pantry and Second Harvest Food Bank previously, but I also want to mention that now would be a great time to seek out holiday gifts made by furloughed or laid-off theme park employees. I will link out to different ways to do that in the show notes for this episode, and we'll honestly be screaming it for the next eight weeks. But I myself was able to purchase a birthday gift for a friend through Gracie Gomez, an incredible furloughed pastry chef who made the coolest cake for my friend Heather. So from local deliveries, if you happen to live near a theme park, to wonderful objects and experiences delivered nationwide, there's so much out there. So I highly, highly recommend using those resources. All right. It feels weird to skip the news. It it feels like I left my homework in my bedroom and I'm rolling up to homeroom, but let's do it. Let's get right into our third and final installment of How Things Work. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Thank you. 
Welcome, welcome, welcome to our third and final episode of our How Things Work series. We've previously discussed audio animatronic advancements, new ride technologies, creating costumed characters, and what it takes to pull off an innovative stunt show. But believe it or not, there's even more in store today. We'll be breaking down how nighttime spectaculars and shows are created and discussing how the way you interact with theme park rides and lands will change your visits and vacations for the better going forward. When it comes to projection mapping, our first guest, Darren Ulmer, is the guy. If you're new to the term, it's essentially insider lingo for the type of digital media used worldwide, but seen most regularly by folks like us during theme park nighttime experiences. It's not the fireworks or the sparklers, but the imagery projected upon a castle or building or structure. That is projection mapping. And as founder and chief creative at Mousetrap, an experienced design and production studio, Darren knows everything about it. I'm so thrilled Darren came on because he's seen firsthand how this technology progressed over time because he's been working with it for years on everything from theme parks to collaborations with Tom Hanks. In this chat, you'll truly learn top to bottom how the technology is utilized in some of your favorite nighttime shows, how it's progressed over time and where it's going next. And the answer to that one is unreal. I am not going to spoil it for you, but it's a doozy. I joke that with California parks still being closed, I'd I'd want this dude to come over and projection map my own house. And that's exactly what he's done. We'll get into it towards the end of the interview, but you too can now have a nighttime spectacular style display on your own castle walls, thanks to Darren. Okay, enough chatting from me. Let's get into this glorious talk with Darren Ulmer. so much for coming on Very Amusing. I'm so excited to talk to you about every wonderful thing you've ever created. <laughs> it's my honor to share this time with you. So I feel like a lot of people in the theme park community know what projection mapping is. We, you know, we'll go to the parks with our family and friends and be like, oh, I know how this works. But the truth is, even I myself don't exactly know what it takes to put something like that together. So I'd love to know from you just how, like, Top to bottom, how does projection mapping work? To do that, can I go a little bit into the history of projection mapping? Of course. People have been aware of it for probably about the last 10 years. Uh, Since we did Magic Memories and You at at Disney World, that was kind of a a watershed year or two where it became a pervasive technology. But it's actually been around for more like 20, 25 years and was actually originally called Spatial Augmented Reality. Uh, So before the term augmented reality was around spatial augmented reality referred to augmenting the reality of buildings and facades and the things that you you map the projection onto with uh, this augmented layer. And so um, it was originally done with just, you know, still projectors, Pawnee projectors, which are like large slide projectors. and, And you would you would project an empty slide and hand draw the building onto the slide and then go back and paint in the details and paint variations on those details. Wait, you're saying that like that's a normal thing. What? <laughs> that sounds yeah, impossible. I never did it, but <laughs> yeah, but but that's how it was done. Um and so it it where it really evolved and took off was in the um uh mid 2000s, 2005 to 2010. Uh digital projection technology has finally got bright enough uh, and with good enough resolution to substitute digital projection for the original still 
you know, analog projections that were happening. And that changes everything because now we have all the digital tools to warp and, and uh, 3D model the buildings. And, and that's really where things took off, right? So uh, I guess I could get into the process here. I, I want to hear all of it. Sure, sure. Well, it, it, it starts with, with the same tools that we use in, in CG modeling to do 3D animation, right? So we, here's a typical process. A, a, a brand new building, we have usually the CAD files for a new building, or if it's an existing building, like the, you know, one of the castles, the building is scanned. It's, it's usually a LIDAR scan. You can also use photogrammetry, which is using a, a large collection of photos and have the computer kind of synthesize that sort of like Google, you know, Google Earth buildings look. But for real detail, we scan it with a laser from usually 10 or 12 or more positions. And that creates a big, it's called a point cloud, but it's, it's a collection of dots that represent all of the geometry, all the spots where the laser bounces back. And that forms this digital model in, from which we're able to create an actual CG model of, of the building. Once we have that, we are able to take that model and create the content on it. And we select a, a, a what we call the king seat, a, a primary point of view, which is usually kind of front and center. It's where, uh, you know, the, the term king seat refers to the, the seat that you would hold in a, in a theater years ago for the king, right? It's, it's the ultimate point of view for the audience. And so if that's in one of the Disney parks, for example, that would be somewhere on Main Street, usually, usually between Coke Corner and the Hub. And this is the ideal viewing locations because everything that we create and render is meant to be viewed from that exact point of view. Every little inch or degree off of that viewing point, there's a slight compromise in the, in the viewing. So if you really want to, to, to see one of the shows in its you know, absolute conceived form, you want to stand right in that spot in the, in the center of Main Street. Now, fortunately, Main Street is, is very thin and narrow, right? So most people are within a, a reasonable margin of error for that, that point of view. But the art is created, like I said, from that point of view. And then we digitally, in, you know, in computer space, we take that artwork and we, pro we actually project it virtually on a model of the castle so that it wraps around all of the geometry and it becomes like a big texture. Like you, you took that artwork frame by frame and uh, applied it like wallpaper, essentially, to all of the shapes and corners and, and turns of the, ca of, of the building or the castle or wh whatever we're, we're mapping on. But the projectors themselves are not in that ideal king seat location. Uh, in the case of the Magic Kingdom, the, the projectors are on the rooftops of Main Street and uh, over uh, Tomorrowland Terrace and uh, over in Liberty Square, right? So they, they shoot at the castle from, from a huge variety of angles. So we have software tools that allow us to solve for those angles. In other words, in the virtual world, determine exactly where those projectors are and exactly what their lenses are and what their, therefore, what their exact geometric point of view of the castle is. Just imagine there's this, there's this virtual version of the castle. It has this wallpaper. It has this texture all the way wrapped around it. And then we virtually film that from the point of view of each one of those projectors and then send that data out the projector. And so when that projects back on the castle, you get its exact point of view, but it resolves to the audience point of view. I hope that makes sense. It's a little complicated without uh, showing illustrations. <laughs> well, I just, I didn't realize that you're kind of just a mathematician for joy. 
<laughs> uh, I've got really, really good mathematicians that work with this, but but you do have to understand the process to be able to, you know, direct it. Because this is like angles and data and all this stuff. And I'm like, you do all this just so we can be like, look, snow is falling digitally. Like it's so, <laughs> there's so much work goes into just producing something that makes people happy. Oh my God. So yeah, no, that's, that, that's true. I think even before we had the digital models, uh, we actually did one of the first theme park map projections, which was the opening night of the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, uh, which was uh, in June of 2010. And uh, there was an uh, opening night event that ran two nights, two different sets of press on those two nights. And for that one, uh, you know, the project was so secretive that we didn't have any digital models, right? That They, they wouldn't give us anything <laughs> to work from. So I went out there about three weeks before opening and shot a, a series of photographs uh, from as close to the projector locations as we could. And then we kind of constructed that model and, and did three nights of work on site to warp it in and, and make it work. And that's not the easy way of doing things, but it was the only way to do it. Uh, How did it turn time. out? It turned out beautiful. I, that, that was a great little show. It, it didn't involve the level of sophistication because we didn't have the 3d model. We weren't able to do some of the tricks, right? So if we want to make the castle transform, if we want, you know, you want to see the bricks push out or things open up or kind of change the shape of it. Uh, you can paint that and you can animate that, but you really want to have a digital model so that you, we actually animate a model of the castle and reproject it back onto itself. And so there were some limitations and I think just kind of every year and every show we do, we discover something, you know, newer and better and another way to, you know, another way to accomplish it and another way to make it work faster. We projection mapped every Disney castle uh, in the world and, you know, even more of the parks than that. Uh, we do the ABC Disney Parks holiday special each year and there's an opening number that we designed and directed uh, where they, uh, throughout the show, they go kind of around the world to each of the parks. So we have done every one of the parks, but we've done major shows at Disneyland, primarily at Walt Disney World, Tokyo Disneyland. For something like an ABC special, when it's not primarily being viewed in person, it's being viewed through a camera lens, do you have to adjust for that? We definitely adjusted those shows for camera. Uh, they, they probably looked, uh, in that case, a little bit better on camera than in person, uh, whereas the shows in general are designed to be viewed in person and, and the light is balanced to the other effects in the park. Wow. So yeah. uh, I want to go back to what you said about, you know, just casually scanning a whole castle with a laser. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Uh, how long does that process usually take to like to just input an entire building in a way where you're able to model and play around with it? It's one or two nights, depending on the complexity. A simple building can be done literally in a matter of two or three hours. Uh, the more complex would probably be more like six to 12 hours. So it's, it's not... It's not a difficult process. It, it's 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 a computer process that you know is is used uh, a lot in the movie industry. Uh, when they film on set or on location, they will go out and do a lidar scan of that location so that they have the d digital information. Should they want to modify it? Should they want to extend the set or set or make changes in post production? So we use a lot of the same tools that are used in in film production, visual effects. That's so cool. How much has new technology changed what you do? Because I have to imagine, even just from five years ago, what you're capable of doing mapping-wise is much different than, like, even now or going forward in the next few years. As technology gets faster and, and more efficient, we're actually just usually able to do more with it, right? We don't produce shows faster than we used to. We're just able to take them further. 
you know, I, I always say that if we were Olympic swimming, the pool would always get longer. The times would never get shorter. <laughs> and that's that. That's kind of what happens is we just we're able to push things f- further with more detail, uh, with more complexity to it because we're able to render more. It takes a tremendous amount of rendering power. The you, you know a typical projection mapped building or castle is roughly eight to twelve times more resolution than four K TV. So Whoa. we're we're making very very large scale you know visual effects and animation and, and rendering those and. There's a process that we do on on site, um, which most people are aware of because, you know, you can be in the contemporary resort and <laughs> look into the park yeah. ahead of time, right? Um, people like me are sneaking around. And <laughs> yeah, you know, we're aware. Um, <laughs> but th- there's there are typically one to four weeks of installation nights where we go out and we're tweaking and adjusting little things. We get a lot of it right. We, we build scale models in our studio. So we have scale models of, of all the buildings that we've projected on, and we do our work on the scale models. It, uh, it, it's a great way to kind of see how the light reacts to the, to the building. We also use virtual reality. So we have virtual versions and we put the headsets on, and VR gives us a good sense, good analog for the scale of a building. Our scale models are usually about three to six feet tall. And so we kind of have some sense of what we're taking. We've gotten good enough that we're 90% of the way there. Once we're on site, we're adjusting the color, dialing the saturation and the lightness up and down. It's it's a blend between too much light on the castle and it just looks like a big, big bright white light on the castle. Too little light and you don't actually see the effect. So it, everything is trying to find that sweet spot. And of course, over time, we get more used to how a building works and we get closer and closer each time with our guesses. Uh, but there is that process on site, which brings me back to your question. How has technology improved things? The ability to render more things more quickly. We'll do an iteration. We'll rehearse a segment or even a whole big chunk of the show one night. We'll go through, make notes, and then we will have to render that entire section again, You know, literally thousands and thousands of frames uh, of a video at this ultra high resolution and then have that ready so that we can look at it the next time it's dark. Right. So, so as technology gets stronger, we're able to do more of that each night and, and, and push it harder. But I would say the biggest innovation that we've had, uh, if I go back to the original shows like magic memories and you, uh, the playback media servers, they're, they're basically big giant computers that are, are, are graphics intense. Um, the servers are now able to do that step that I described earlier of resolving. They literally do that in real time now. So we are able to feed it just our artwork. We used to render the show once for the art and a second time to solve for that, for the projector locations. And that's all real time and has been now for about six years. So we can go up and we can paint and we can adjust colors and we see the results instantly on the building, which we couldn't do originally. So you're telling me you could fully be in a park somewhere and just be like, do, 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 and just create what you want and it'll appear? <laughs> that's what we do. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. So in terms of projecting, is there is there any, of all of the services you've done, is there anything that presents a problem that we, the audience, might not expect, either in terms of a specific effect or if you're projecting on a certain material or texture or color? Like, what what gives you stress that we never know about? <laughs> shiny things, <laughs> windows, shiny tiles, like rooftop tiles, gold leafing, and uh, sometimes 
in the past few years, there will be enhancements on some of the castles for the anniversaries, which usually add uh, a lot of very descript objects like like banners and, and uh, you know, gold leafing and things. This was the case uh, at, at Disneyland for their 65th anniversary. You know, a lot of a lot of those details were physically added to the castle. We prefer a, 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 a more blank canvas and we put those details in, you know, digitally. Um, so for, for a surface to, to take light, like projection, it has to be a diffuse surface. It can't be what's called a specular surface, which is one of those shiny surfaces. So we're never able to do as much, for instance, on those, those shiny blue tile rooftops, uh, as we are on sort of the grayish bricks. We also like in general, kind of lighter mid-tones, like, you know, mid-tone grays. Uh, although now projectors are, are bright enough that we can go over, overcome darker surfaces. I know it's theme park adjacent, but I'd love to talk to you about some of the mm. projects you've done where mm. you've been able to create the whole experience, like you've yeah. been in control. Um, what has that been like just on your end to be able to enter and create from the ground up and not have to work around any fixes of things that are already there? We've done several projects where we've got to design the actual projection mapped surfaces. For instance, we did... We did two ride film attractions at Porta Ventura uh, in Barcelona, near Barcelona, uh, for the new Ferrari land there. And so we did a flying theater, kind of a, a Soren like like theater, and a, a more uh, uh, traditional motion-based dome attraction. But we also designed everything in the queue. And there is a big, big area of the queue that you're in for 20, 25 minutes. And think of it kind of like the old great movie ride. There's, it's, it's almost like you're in a switchback and there's a big screen in front of you, except that that's a projection map surface. And so we were able to design that with exactly the level of detail and extrusion that we wanted to accomplish the result. So that's kind of freeing. That's a, that's a good, <laughs> that's a good thing <laughs> to get to do from time to time. Uh, we've also done, uh, you know, other projects that maybe are a little less projection mapping, but but had, you know, huge creative input and influence, such as the show portions of Space Shuttle Atlantis, the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, uh, and the the film Beyond All Boundaries at the National World War II Museum, which we did with the Hedemer Group, and Tom Hanks was executive producer uh, and starred in that piece. Um, we love having the creative influence, and we have a lot of creative influence with the theme park partners that we have, too. Uh, I, I've been fortunate enough to be uh, lead creative consultant on shows like uh, Happily Ever After, so we're we're involved from early early on in those in that process designing what that overall experience is. Is there anything you've ever wanted to create but the tech just isn't there yet? Like you're a few years out and just waiting to be able to do a certain effect or a certain project or anything like that. Without getting into the details of this, because it is an R&D project that we're currently doing, uh, one of the things that's in the future for us with projection mapping is real-time projection mapping, which basically means instead of all that rendering being done ahead of time, it's allowing it to, to happen in real time like a video game does. So we're seeing more and more kind of real-time rendering. If you've seen any of the behind the scenes on The Mandalorian, you've seen how they're able to render that background in perspective to the camera in real time. Uh, Mousetrap is working on some technologies right now that will allow us to do that, not just on a flat screen like that, but on projection mapped architecture. And wow. uh, there'll be some interesting implications for, for yeah, and applications for that, both both in shows and spectaculars like you typically see it, but also in, in attractions and 
and walkthroughs and exhibits. So I believe for everyone who is deeply missing their nighttime spectacular fix, you have created a solution. I would love to hear more about what you have in the works. Yeah, but you know, back in April, May, we started thinking about things that we could do to kind of, quote unquote, bring that magic home. Uh, given that, you know, we knew it would be quite some time before people were able to experience some of the things that we do in person. Uh, we started developing a, a kind of intriguing list of, for lack of a better word, products that we could sell directly to consumers that they could have magical experiences in their home uh, using some of our expertise in creating, uh, you know, combining media with physical space. So we are about to introduce uh, our first product that we're taking to market. It's called the Luminarium Shadow Box. And if you have seen shadow boxes that are, are you know, made of multi layers of paper or, or you know, kind of multi-plane, uh, this is a 12-layer box. It is a 32-inch diagonal, so roughly three feet wide, just a little less than three feet wide. Um, and it has a display technology built into it where we are able to animate and bring the scene to life and have characters and other effects sort of interact with these paper sculpture environments that we're creating. So it will ship with one set of paper sculpture built in and, and the media content, which will connect to Wi-Fi and update over time. So we'll have a little surprises for people on Christmas morning or New Year's Eve, uh, little show moments that happen in your home. And it's kind of an art piece, uh, but it's, it's a living media art piece. Wow, like like a Tesla, but for your for your wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, and and it does update over time. So so you will be able to replace those layers and put in other scenic that we'll design in the future. And and we haven't quite figured out what the model for that will be, whether that will be a subscription or kind of pay as you go. But yes, the content can update and it will synchronize with the with the scenic that you put in there. And it will be designed to sit, you know, on the mantle or a table or it'll hang from the wall also. Oh wow. So yeah. So this is this is a piece that you would yeah, probably have in the living room or in your office or, or something. And it, it it has um it has a clock within it. So, you know, think of it as a very, very complicated cuckoo clock that's that's half digital and half papers. <laughs> and way chicer than whatever you would buy on like a Germany vacation. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, it's um it's really unique. This this technique has been used in a few public displays and, and art displays, but we haven't seen it done uh, at home yet. We'd love to transform. We'd love to, you know, surprise and, and enhance and do all those things. I, yeah, I think that's exactly what this product's intended to do. Wow. Is is there anything else that we haven't covered that you want to share or wisdom from your many years in creating magic that all of us just sit and cry and clap at? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. What I would just share is is that while we didn't invent projection mapping, right? It was it was being done in Europe in kind of cult, you know cultural art shows, citywide festivals, uh, and then Madison Avenue picked it up, and there were originally a bunch of kind of viral video things like uh, uh, the ones I remember of Ralph Lauren and LG did big projection mapping on their facades in New York. And, and, and you know, this went viral uh, years ago. And what we wanted to do was take that premise and apply it to storytelling and, and do it on a more permanent installation basis. And, and so that's kind of the angle that we've had was, you know, from the beginning, let's take all the things we can do here and figure out how to tell story. And I think one of our signatures with this is that we never 
we never go into a project thinking of the building as just a screen. It's not just a it, it's not just a you know cleverly or interestingly shaped screen. It is that we are embellishing and enhancing that building. So what we think of, in, and this is probably true of most of the things we do with Mousetrap, we don't think in terms of making film. We think in terms of making theater. And so when we look at the castle, we think first, if we had unlimited budget and unlimited time, how would we stage this scene? How would we stage Moana or, or Frozen or a Halloween show on the castle if we were to actually go in and put real decor on it? and put real lighting on it. And yet, then we unconstrain ourselves from the physical world and say, but we're in the digital world, so now we can add the magic to that. We can transform it you know, quicker and through more magical ways than you could with physical scenic. So we like to think, A, that the, that the castle or any of these places are kind of the start of the show. They're like the storyteller, and they transform themselves to facilitate the, the telling of the story. And so I think that's sort of part of where we think the magic comes in, into it is that, again, we're not just watching a movie on on the castle in a weird, you know, constrained shape, but rather that that castle is, is a scenic piece and it's, it's magically participating in in the presentation of the show. You can find more about Darren Ulmer's work at mousetrap.com spelled mouse T R A P P E.com and get your hands on one of those theme park style at home experiences at luminarium shadowbox.com. Anyone who's uttered the words Genie Plus knows firsthand that vacations require time, money, planning, energy. And if you put all that effort into enjoying your trip already, why not extend the highlights of that getaway into your everyday with FrameBridge? Put that vintage Epcot ticket up in your office and give it a little personality. Surprise your kid with their favorite character's autograph immortalized on the wall of their room. FrameBridge makes it so easy and affordable to custom frame any photo, park map, or even cocktail napkin from a theme park hotel bar in just minutes. You can mock up exactly what it'll look like on their website before you even spend a dime. Things ship fast and they ship for free, and their colorful custom framing means they'll not only help you plan your gallery wall, but make sure your place looks cooler than the interiors of that mid-century modern home within Spaceship Earth. I love the mementos I framed with FrameBridge so much that I rearranged my entire office so I can enjoy them daily. This is not a bit. This is this is true life. They're the backdrop to my podcast Zoom interviews, my Instagram stories, and even the goofy photos we take of Pearl tip-tapping away at my keyboard like she's a miniature employee. Too often, our favorite memories of a vacation are tucked inside our phone or shoved within a drawer. And it thrills me to no end that because of FrameBridge, I can finally be surrounded by my memories. FrameBridge makes custom framing easy, affordable, and enjoyable. And on top of that, their happiness guarantee ensures that no matter what, you'll wind up with something you love. To get started, head to FrameBridge.com, because your precious travel memories shouldn't have to stay in the past. That's FrameBridge.com. The power to change your surroundings within a theme park is nothing short of magical, and Todd Martins knows that better than most people. He writes about games, experiential design, and theme parks at the Los Angeles Times, and is an expert in, well, all three of those topics. 
Theme parks have leaned into interactivity in recent years, but Disney has gone above and beyond across its resorts. You may have used the Play Disney Parks app to be surprised by Tinkerbell while in line for Peter Pan flight, done the Menahune Adventure Trail at Aulani, or even participated in the Midship Detective Agency on Disney Cruise Line, where unsuspecting artwork throughout the ship becomes clues to solving various mysteries. Todd and I discussed various theme park experiences, like the Star Wars Datapad, located within the Play Disney Parks app, which is intended to enhance your visit to Galaxy's Edge on both coasts. We also talked about the Wizarding World of Harry Potter and how Meow Wolf and its interactive experiences provide a really interesting case study for how many of the non-theme park places we enjoyed before the pandemic may safely reopen again. Todd's knowledge is so vast that he even somewhat predicted how we'll visit theme parks in the next few years. It's extremely interesting, and I think you're going to love it. So, without further ado, here is my friend and colleague, Todd Martins. Welcome to the podcast, Todd! It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, from my understanding experiential aspects of theme parks is slash was the next big frontier. I know that the data pad at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge was supposed to offer this kind of immersive level of gameplay while you're within the land to bring your story within your surroundings. Is that where things are going? So the data pad is really in Galaxy's Edge is sort of like an evolution of what you've seen maybe um, for Walt Disney World fans with like Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom. Um, or in Wizarding World, sort of the wands that do interactions. It's basically just thinking of the public relations statement of like the land as an attraction. Um, so the data pad is sort of using games or using your phone as a way to sort of think about the entire sort of area that you are in is an attraction. Um, so the benefit of that is it gives you a way to explore the park. It gives you a way to sort of explore underutilized areas of Galaxy's Edge. Um, so, you know, I, I did do one day where I spent, you know, seven hours in Galaxy's Edge just with, you know, the data pad and using all of the interactions. Um, you know, so the data pad is sort of a, a living thing. You know, I, Disney supposedly says they're going to keep updating it. Um, you know, but it is sort of nice in that if you're somebody who's very deep into Star Wars, it sort of gives you a way to sort of interact with the land in a way that you wouldn't necessarily get if you were just passively walking through it. And it sort of, it also sort of unlocks this sort of whole other vision of the land. Like it becomes like the land becomes this whole other sort of overlay of like, whereas, you know, you, your standard everyday guest who's just going there, I'm going to go hit two rides and then go home, isn't going to stop and look at, you know, this carving and try to figure out how it fits into X, Y, and Z. And not that everybody needs to do that or wants to do that. Um, but if the Imagineers, if the creatives are going through the process of creating that, um, the data pad is sort of a way to sort of bring that all into the story. Do you feel like the juice is worth the squeeze in putting in that much infrastructure and effort into something like that? Like how many people are using these things? I think the real magic is in what you've seen in Sorcerers or what you've seen in, you know, the variations of the Epcot Detectives game that they've done over the years and certainly in the Wizarding World one. So the real magic is in having some sort of interaction with something in the land. And there are light touches of that in Galaxy's Edge. You know, you could, you know, make a starship, you know, make a couple beeps, or, you know, you could make a droid, make a couple beeps. But by and large, for the data pad, for long term, for this to really catch on, 
beyond sort of, you know, somebody like me who's a big theme park fan or somebody who's just a big Star Wars fan, for it to really sort of catch on, you need some sort of interactions with between your device and between the land. You need some sort of, in you know, Galaxy's Edge, they make a big deal out of credits. Um, you need some sort of sense of these credits having some sort of, you know, you're not going to use them to buy actual merch, but you need some sort of payoff that these credits mean something in the land, that you can get something for these credits. Um, or else somebody like me, I'll do it for, you know, the first couple months or the first month the land is open because I live in California. And then I'll eventually lose interest because there is no continued sort of payoff. My favorite land to sort of go to in view is like a land to, uh, you know, play in or whatever. I know that sounds a little weird. Um, is probably Pandora in Animal Kingdom, even though it doesn't have, you know, a data pad like Galaxy's Edge. Um, so it doesn't have a specific game, you know, like the data pad in Galaxy's Edge. It's like the game is like the control of the land or you can sort of hack droids or uh, hack radio towers. Um, but get, Pandora, on the other hand, like the whole act of play is just the act of discovery. Um, and sort of both of those attractions, um, while Flight of Passage has a very sort of long expository queue, if you go through the whole queue, both of those attractions are more sort of experiential attractions in the sense that there isn't necessarily a clear plot of like, here's the, you know, beginning, middle, end, here's the bad person coming in and turning <laughs> to you, the characters in a seatbelt saying, get out of here, kids. You know, so there isn't like one of You're those. the only one who can <laughs> save us. <laughs> right, exactly. Yes. So they're more sort of experiential attractions, but the attractions then sort of become sort of a place to play if you go through and you learn about, you know, the conservation, the uh, efforts to save these species. Um, and, you know, given the Avatar sort of backdrop, it sometimes feels a little silly. Um, but the sense is that you can go into that land and feel like you are walking into, you know, Yosemite and sort of just sort of play as discovery, if sort of that makes sense. Um, so like that sort of is more interesting to me because it gets you to use every sort of space of that land as something to learn about or sort of dig deeper into as opposed to you are, you know, a member of, you know, you are a wizard who is, you know, doing XYZ or you are a member of the First Order who's doing XYZ, which assigns you a role and not everybody necessarily wants to have a role. To me, it seems like Universal's Wizarding World of Harry Potter has been the pinnacle when it comes to interactivity because it opened quite a while ago and still buying a wand. So there's a commerce portion attached, which is that's I mean, it keeps it around because there's money being funneled in. But there's you buy a wand and you do a spell and it's just it still works this many years down the line. It's still magical. It's still exciting. And people are still buying wands like they were before it for you. Is there an example like that where you point to and you're like, this is the future. This works. There should be more of this. Um, it would be, it would probably be the wands. Because, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that's, yeah, that for all the reasons you just said. And um, as somebody who wasn't incredibly familiar with the Harry Potter books or movies, the first time I went to Wizarding World, the thing that excited me most was just watching people do those wand interactions. So before the pandemic, if you can remember back that far, 
It seemed like everything was moving towards this experiential, immersive design, where even if it's not a theme park, you have this kind of hybrid space where you experience something that is deeply themed in an attraction way, and you are with other people (laughs) indoors and enclosed in a crowd. So I would love to talk about the Meow Wolf story you wrote, because you were kind of on the subject as the world changed. For those who don't know, Mialf is sort of uh, started as an art collective. They have a place in New Mexico that is a walkthrough um, experience called uh, the House of Eternal Return. Um, and there is, you go through this house where there's this sort of sci-fi X-Files-like narrative that then leads you into all these sort of mystical areas. So you could go and spend all day uncovering the story, or you can go and just take fun pictures. Um, or you can go and try to interact with all the environments. So it sort of has one foot in the art space, one foot in the theme park space. Um, and yeah, so I went to, I sort of viewed what Meow Wolf was doing as sort of also influencing what, you know, we've seen Disney and Universal do. I think uh, Rise of the Resistance uh, certainly has some sort of influence from the immersive theater space. You know, the first half of that ride, you are led from room to room, you know, cast are in characters. Um, so it's sort of, we were, yeah, you are correct. We were moving to a place where we were much more experiential, much more sort of acting guests to sort of lean in and participate and sort of make guests feel that they were, you know, not passive audience members and sort of Meow Wolf is like all of that to like the extreme is like, if you just go to Meow Wolf <laughs> and you're passive, you're not going to have a good time because you're just, you don't, you're not going to understand it. So like Meow Wolf, you have to sort of lean in, you have to sort of, go ready to play and go ready to, it sounds weird to say this in like the state we're in in 2020, go in and like touch things and move things around. So, you know, they're certainly going to have to adjust, but uh, so, so yeah, so Meow Wolf is also building a space in Las Vegas that is supposed to open early next year, um, provided the pandemic cooperates, but it is much more game oriented. Like when you walk into the Meow Wolf space in Las Vegas. Instead of walking into a house where you do in New Mexico, you will walk into a grocery store um, and you'll be assigned essentially a role. You'll be given an ID card that will assign you as a character who works at this grocery store, who works for this Omega Mart company. And this Omega Mart will have all these doors or hidden passageways that go into all these like giant art spaces that you can go and interact. I mean, Meowth struggled like every other theme park entertainment company, theme design company is struggling right now. At the same time, they hadn't fully, they hadn't even installed any of the art in the Las Vegas space. So they did have the benefit of making sure that at least for the first year or two, it's not necessarily going to be super cramped or lead people into places that it wouldn't be possible to physically distant. So they at least had the benefit of installing after shutdown theme park rides take so long to build and put together and just ideate that it seemed like in the next few years we were going to start to see these experiences where all of this would come together and do you think that you know the space of gameplay tech whatever whatever word you want to call it do you think that can still be as emerging as it was in a current slash post-pandemic world you know if i were to be like optimistic about this moment um, it would be sort of a lot of these ideas that people have thrown out. And it should be said that like stuff I'm talking about here is 
people at Universal Creative or Imagineering have probably been pitching for 10 years before I'm talking about them. So I think it's a time that now those ideas that have been talked about can really start to come to sort of fruition. Even if we're being completely optimistic and things are great, there's probably going to be sort of, you know, sort of a moment where everything is not yet sort of normal. Like we're still doing some physical distancing and um, also we're still figuring out what people's, you know, comfort levels are in, you know, being in public spaces. So, but this is like an opportunity, like there are a lot of areas even at Disneyland for being much smaller than, you know, the Florida park. There are a lot of opportunities to get guests to, you know, discover new spaces. So like you can spread people around to places that aren't necessarily high trafficked. We don't know what the economic situation is going to be like. We don't know what uh, corporate situations are going to be like for a while. And if a ride takes somewhere between four to six years, um, you know, these sort of game-like experiences are things that can be done, especially in a place like Southern California, where you have a very robust annual pass holder who is going to be wanting new things to come back for, things to interact with, um, and things to sort of, and to sort of start to train them to sort of view the entire park as a, a game board, as I would say it was originally intended. Can you talk at all about how some of these experiences will play out within the future of Avengers Campus when it does open at Disney California Adventure? So Avengers Campus is definitely sort of what's up next, where this is heading. You sort of see with the Spider-Man ride that's coming to Disney California Adventure, just the evolution in attractions. In the 90s and, you know, the early 2000s, you know, there was a sense of everybody's playing games, kids are playing games, they're not going to want to come to a theme park, so let's make a theme park ride that is a game. So we have rides that are still very popular today, like Midway Mania, but that ride is very much a game. It's less about how does a theme park interpret a game, and it's more about how do we put a game in a theme park. So I think that we're seeing that sort of change. And we're seeing that change with Smuggler's Run. Um, we're seeing that change with the Spider-Man ride. Both of these rides are about getting people to participate, to communicate. Yeah, there's a competition factor, but you're pressing buttons, you're telling people to hit, pull a lever, you're telling people in the Spider-Man ride to use gesture controls. So I think that's, it sort of gets you into an environment where you can be silly. And I think the really exciting thing about these sort of experiences is that when you're in something like Smuggler's Run or you're in something like this upcoming Spider-Man ride, it gets you a little less tense or a little less like nervous. You can be goofy. You're in the Spider-Man ride. You're going to be using your inner hands to manipulate the environment. There's opportunities for, you know, acting silly. There's opportunities for making like weird faces, for yelling at your friends. And when you get out of an experience like that, you're much more likely to be like, oh, okay, like, what can I go do next? As opposed to what can you show me next? You're in a mindset where like, I'm ready to be active. That leads to stuff like you can go build a droid or that leads to you can build a lightsaber or in Avengers Campus that leads to you can go into the gift shop and you can watch these little spider bots duke it out in sort of a video game like battle where they keep score. So the spider bots, the main toy of Avengers Campus, is essentially a game that you'll want to bring home if you want to buy one. <laughs> you'll bring home and essentially battle with another spider bot, and the spider bot can have sort of some personalities that'll sort of change, and it'll you know that'll change how the fight goes. But it's essentially a video game, like a physical video game. So that's sort of where this continues to go. So it's not just about putting something on a phone and getting people to look at an app and walk around or getting people to stop looking at you know their own apps while they're walking around and look at the theme park apps. It's more about how do we get people to constantly engage 
with the theme park. So it's like using phones to engage with the settings, using rides to get you out of a mindset where you're there just to watch, using the ride to get you into a mindset where you're there to participate. So you get off Spider-Man, you play with the Spider-Bots, and then in you know non-pandemic times, you go and do training with you know some of the Avengers. Thank you so much to Todd Martins for coming on the show. I hope at this point you've at least learned something new and interesting, like how there's a robot army of audio animatronics being built, or how projection mapping is made and where to stand for the best point of view, or even how many years it takes to put a stunt show like Universal's Born Stuntacular together. If you're as interested in this stuff as I am, stick around because there will be future podcast episodes like this. And I hope you enjoyed learning how some of your favorite theme park attractions, rides, and experiences are made. Hi, Carly. This is Alyssa from New Jersey. I had a weird question. Um, I have this very innate fear of the nasty, dirty hanging foot on Pirates of the Caribbean. And I wasn't sure if anybody had any other strange, weird fears. Um, I'm almost 30, and I'll probably never get over it. I still don't like it. I can't even look at it. It's very embarrassing. But, yeah, I don't know. Does anybody, like, is anybody afraid of any other weird things in the park? Thanks. I got to tell you, I at first had no idea what this foot was that you spoke of. So I consulted Todd Martin's podcast guest and Pirates of the Caribbean mega fan, and he pointed it out to me and I realized I've I've never I've never noticed the foot. He does say that it's in slightly different positions and that the foot is a little closer to you at Disneyland, but it's just that drunk pirate hanging out off the little bridge and I I've never clocked it, so I guess I am not scared of it because it's never affected me. However, I am terrified of dinosaur. I think I've talked about that in here before. I know your call is about something specific, but the whole ride, the whole experience, don't love it. Didn't know I was scared of things popping out of the darkness until I went on it. Makes it very hard to write about Halloween Horror Nights, I'll tell you that, when you don't like things popping out of nowhere. But that's really the only thing I I think I'm scared of at Disney parks. I guess the only other thing I can think of is that I don't like to look some of the older audio animatronics in the eye. (laughs) (laughs) which I'm sure many people here would agree with me on, especially after last week's episode where we know how they work and that they're getting very, very technologically advanced. Maybe I should be more scared of them. Maybe I I should be because they're going to attack me. But the old ones are the ones that really creep me out because I kind of feel like there is there is a spirit in there. Like they've been there for so long. They've prevailed that like they've absorbed all of the other old audio animatronic spirits and now they're all one. But I try not to look them in the eye. I just try not to. I try to be respectful of them, just in case. But if there is anything that you all are are freaked out by on rides, call in, because now I kind of want to know, should I be more cautious? Oh, boy. Hi, this is Kayla from New York. I just stopped listening to um, last week's Star Wars episode, and I am aghast by the fact that you did not love Wishes. I love Happily Ever After. It's great. Um, the first time I saw it, I was blown away by how high quality it is, but nothing beats the Wishes music. Nothing. Um, yep, I'm upset by this. Just wanted to let you know. That's what I grew up with. That's what I knew for 
decades before or however long it was on for my whole childhood before they switched to happily ever after. And yeah, very disappointed. I love your podcast though. Thank you. Hi, listen, I, I get it. And I want to be respectful to everyone who listens to this podcast. But I will say a little part of me who just echoes the sentiment of I'm not here to make friends did come out in listening to this voicemail because there are a lot of things that I think you could defend wishes for. But the music? I mean... Wishes. Like, I'm sorry, that is a nightmare. Just children's voices going, wishes. After you just spent $150 at California Grill on some sushi, wishes. When you're like, two hours until I get back to my hotel because the buses are so packed, no thank you. I don't want any like creepy children choir ushering me into my night. No thank you. No thank you. Hi, Carly. Uh, this is Eli from uh, the beautiful... Illinois. And um, first, I just want to say I love your podcast. I love all the energy you bring um, to it. And um, I look forward to listening to it every week. Um, okay, my question kind of pertains to what's going on right now. Um, recently in the news, um, a lot of the cast members that um, worked in the live shows, like uh, the musical type shows, um, a lot of them got laid off. And um, I thought we'd just take a second to appreciate them. And by doing that, I wanted to know what your favorite, like, live show, like, musical-type show is, and why is it uh, Finding Nemo the Musical in Animal Kingdom? Thank you. I hope you air this. Of course I'm going to play this call, not just in honor of all of the very, very talented cast members who, oh, I can't even wrap my brain around it, are not currently going to be with the company, but... This is a wonderful opportunity for me to yell about everything I love. I appreciate your hard stance on Finding Nemo because I do feel like that show does not get the appreciation it deserves. I think just because it happens to be located in the same park at Disney's Animal Kingdom with Festival of the Lion King, which is also fantastic. But the two are different and they're, they can both be great. And so I'm with you. It is wonderful. The one that did possibly hit me the hardest, even though I have been crushed by everything, is Hoop-dee-doo, Hoop-dee-doo musical review, because that show is is literally historic. It has set a record for how long it's been running. It's a dinner theater, and you know how I like to munch while I'm watching a show? I love a popcorn, sometimes a bucket of fried chicken. I'll take what I can get. But that one especially is close to me because Hoopty Doo musical review feels like a representation of what it's like to become a Disney fan, where for me, I showed up and was like, I'm sorry, I need to know more. And now I'm fully indoctrinated and love every part of it. And in Hoopty Doo, I showed up and was like, sorry, huh? Oh, a bucket of food? Okay. And then now it's the highlight of my trip whenever I go there. I love it so, so much. So to me, that one hurts the most. And I know it's not at a park. But it is my favorite. Oh, and of course, oh, Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor. Oh, my gosh. People sleep on that show. People do not love it. But for me, it's one of my all-time favorite attractions. I just think it's so funny and so inventive that you can have this like fun stand-up comedy experience that's interactive while also in Tomorrowland Magic Kingdom. I love it so much. And I am oh, I can't even think about how it... <sighs> how it was decimated. Okay, bye. 
It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. That's our show! Thank you all for listening, and thank you to Darren Ulmer and Todd Martins for coming on Very Amusing. You can find Darren's new product, the Luminarium Shadow Box, at luminariumshadowbox.com or in the show notes. Todd Martins' work can be found at the Los Angeles Times or on social media at Todd Martins. And that's M-A-R-T-E-N-S. Also, as always, subscribe to your local newspapers. Without them, we might not have his wonderful writing about everything from Disney cast members to deep dive profiles on Meow Wolf to his extremely unique perspective on ride and land openings. He's usually the definitive word on most things that happen at theme parks. So... I want to keep him in business, personally. You can call in your burning Disney questions, Universal Studios curiosities, or Mickey Mouse antics to 747 churros 24 hours a day. I know there's a lot of anxiety over using a phone, but you can always just hang up and call back if you goof. There's no fear. You're in the clear. Thank you to everyone for rating and subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever else on this vast internet frontier you attend this goofy virtual party. And oh my gosh, the Apple reviews from this week. Thank you so much. (laughs) It's so nice because sometimes I open the podcast to link out to an episode and there'll be like a random erroneous one star review who is like, she is human waste woman one star or this podcast is long one star. And I'm like, it takes a lot of work to make it long. Don't ding me for that. Anyway, to focus on the positive, thank you so much to Big Dog 1975, Chingoya, Good Guy Eats Pie, B Duke 922, Anna SF, Amhets, Drummer Girl 16, Fun and Games 9876, VP83ster, and Atlanta Eve, who said, This podcast, much like Must Do Stacy, is a must do for any Disney and theme park fan. The highest honor. Yes, most of the other reviews are from my mom, but this one's about me, so I'm gonna take it, okay? <laughs> There's a lot of reviews from my mom. Uh, Thankfully, she cannot figure out how to get there because she didn't even understand that area of Apple Podcasts existed. You can find me, Carly Wiesel, on Twitter, Instagram, or my private Facebook group, which everyone is invited to. Or if you like the pod and want to hear, read, and experience a little more of this theme park mania, feel free to join our Patreon. Five bucks each month gets you a handful of podcast minisodes, but also some written stuff if you're a little overextended on the audio side. There are weekly written churro Q&A shares, a monthly theme park zine, and so much more. Thank you to our recent patrons, pa- Patreons? Patrons, still haven't learned. End of the episode. <laughs> still haven't figured out how to say it. Katie, Briar, Adrian, Jennifer, Laura, and Mary. The rest of you can find us at patreon.com slash Carly 
Stay tuned for next week's episode when we will not talk about how things work, but that's the only clue I'm giving you. <laughs> Very Amusing is edited gorgeously by Jeff Box. Thanks so much for listening. See you real soon. Hey, honey, it's mom. I just want to say this week's episode was great. I actually want to go on that Star Wars ride now, and I don't think I'll be as scared now that I know what's going to happen. So when we make plans, I think I'm going to bite the bullet, and we're going to do that together. I also want to say that one phone call from Olu Mel was very scary, and I think that Olu has a mom, and I think that Aloha Mom and I need to have a little talk. We need to have a sit-down about this because I don't like anybody being mean to my daughter. So we'll talk about that. Anyway, thank you for saying those nice things about me. And the Fomley family is so wonderful, and they've been so sweet to me, and I'm enjoying all of this. And I want to thank you, honey. And hopefully I can be your sidekick partner and come in every other week once a month, and we can get this going. I would love that. All right, sweetie, and I might end up on your door, but not with 10 suitcases, 20. I love you. Bye, sweetheart.